Where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Those are the words of Job from the book that bears his name in the Old Testament. And though that question was written thousands of years ago, it's a question that is still with us today. Whether it's explicitly asked or more indirectly addressed, everyone wants to know not just how to make good financial decisions or which car is best for my family or which career to choose, but how to find the good life, the fully alive life. And in our materialistic and consumeristic society, there's much out there that promises life to the full, flourishing or fully alive life. But the wisdom they're selling is a childish wisdom. It's a wisdom that believes in instant success, instant gratification, life without limits, a vision of life that is always up and to the right, that has little to no room for suffering or grief or waiting on the Lord. But the wisdom of God that we're learning about is a wisdom for grown-ups. It teaches us to trust the process, to fear and trust the Lord, and that His grace and presence will turn up in places that we least expect, and He will bring about our flourishing in His time. Welcome to this third session of our study of the Psalms, Truthful Speech as Common Prayer. We'll pick up where we left off from last time, where we gave an overview of the Psalms of Wisdom, but this time we'll go deeper with one of those Psalms, Psalm 37. And in Psalm 37, we're going to see a subtle shift in perspective regarding that retribution principle we talked about last time. And if you recall, that was the belief that the righteous or the wise will prosper and the wicked and the foolish will be destroyed and receive destruction as their reward. Psalm 1 gave us that necessary foundation from which to begin, a givenness to be relied on, as we said last time. And in fact, that givenness does not change. Righteousness will ultimately lead to blessedness and life in the full. But in a world of brokenness and sin, bad things happen to God's people. They happen to all people, whether through our own misdeeds and sin or others. And we'll see in Psalm 37 that the wisdom of Psalm 1 and that retribution principle are able to adapt to the realities of lived existence, the realities of the righteous experiencing suffering, and the wicked, at least for the time being, prospering in their unrighteousness. Now, also toward our last session, we saw how Jesus is the righteous one that these wisdom psalms are ultimately about. The one who ultimately trusted the process by showing us God's intent for humanity and fully living out the deepest meaning of the law. And doing so led to a way of life that in the short term may not have appeared to be so blessed, may not have appeared so fully alive to his enemies. And if we're honest, sometimes not so blessed and fully alive to us either. 
Jesus encountered hardship and resistance from enemies and even from his own family, and yet he was fully alive. He trusted God's process, God's way, the way of righteousness, and he did not grasp for his own idea of the good life before the right time. He only did what he saw his father doing as he told the Jewish leaders in John chapter 5, not his own will. Again, Jesus was the righteous one of Psalm 1 and all the wisdom psalms. And us enjoying the fruits of his obedience, we are made God's adopted children and thereby called to follow him in seeking God's view of the good life. So now that we have that established, now that we're reminded that this all begins in grace, let's turn back to our introduction to Psalm 37. Again, the wisdom psalms give us a kind of wisdom for grown-ups, a wisdom that has room for the hardships of life, the difficulties. And we see this clearly in Psalm 37. This psalm shows us that we can observe life in all its actuality and not have to sugarcoat troubling questions about why the wicked sometimes get away with it. It also shows us that wisdom is not so much about having an answer for these questions as it is trusting in this personal God who does have the answers and makes himself known to us and is faithful to us. In the words of the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, Psalm 37 does not exhibit a triumphalist tone, but it tenaciously holds on to the trustworthiness of God in the long view. In other words, the tone of Psalm 37 is not one of having all the answers, of doubling down on that retributive principle, especially when we see sometimes that wickedness seems to be doing just fine and the wicked seem to be rewarded for their wickedness. No, the tone of Psalm 37 is one of a sober trust in the one who has the answers, the one who is trustworthy. And when you know and trust and fear this God, you are gifted with that long view that Brueggemann just talked about, with the ability not to confuse temporal success with the blessedness of God's promises to those who trust Him. The choice laid before us in Psalm 37, in the words of Old Testament scholar James May, is between the pressures of the present and the promise of the future. So with that in mind, let's dive into this psalm. And in order to help us get a bigger picture of what's going on in Psalm 37, let's just take a look at its structure first. It can be divided into four parts. The first 11 verses make up section one, and here we're given instruction about how to live wisely, especially when the wicked seem to be more prosperous. In verses 12 through 20, we have section two where there are observations made about life, especially the relationship of the wicked to the righteous. And in the verses 21 through 29 in section three, we see characterizations of the lifestyles of the righteous and the wicked and the consequences of those lifestyles. And then finally in section four with verses 30 through 40, we conclude with instruction once again to the wise and more observations about life. 
let's first of all look at verses 1 through 2, and we'll see that, first of all, this wisdom is a righteous wisdom. Let's read those verses together. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. We begin with what not to do here in verse 1. Fret not. Don't get stirred up. Don't obsess about the seeming success of the wicked. Now, I want to give you a note of caution here because all of us, clergy included, are tempted to imagine evildoers, wrongdoers. We're tempted to equate them with our own personal enemies. We're often tempted to believe that those on the other side of the political aisle or those that we have serious disagreements with are evildoers. But that's not necessarily so. Sure, some of those folks you disagree with may in fact be evildoers, but evildoers in the biblical sense are those who live against the grain of God's righteousness. Not our own righteousness, but God's righteousness. And that righteousness is fundamentally relational. And it's about how we treat our neighbor. What do we say every week at the beginning of our liturgy? at worship on Sundays. We say the summary of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, everything that's in you. That's the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, when imagining who these evildoers are in the world, According to a biblical view, the Presbyterian pastor, Tim Keller, gives us a helpful summary when he says, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Keller goes on to explain that most people think of wickedness as disobeying the Ten Commandments as actively breaking the law or lying or committing adultery. And of course, all those things are wicked. But as Keller says, the point he makes is, these are just the visible tip of the iceberg of wickedness. There's a whole realm of wickedness below the surface that's often easier for us to ignore, but it's more fundamental. Keller goes on to say, Things like not feeding the poor when we have the power to do so, or taking so much income out of the business we own that our employees are paid poorly, or shoveling snow for our own driveway without even thinking to do the same for our elderly neighbors. In all these ways, we disadvantage others by advantaging ourselves. This is a much more expansive and grown-up view of righteousness and wickedness than following rules or not following rules. Wickedness, according to a biblical view, is born out of an unwillingness to disadvantage oneself for the good of others, as Jesus did for us when he laid aside his privileges and became one of us, put on human flesh, and even died a death he did not deserve. 
Evildoers are those who refuse the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, in all spheres of life, not just the most obvious or the most noticed areas of morality in our culture. So now that we have some idea of the identity of these evildoers, what does the text say will happen to them? They will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. Most often in Old Testament wisdom literature, plant imagery is used to describe the righteous. But here, it's used to image the wicked. But of course, instead of a tree flourishing next to flowing water, as we saw in Psalm 1, as a way to describe the righteous, here, the wicked are like grass that is about to burn out under the scorching heat of the sun. It's a grass that loses its life when dry season comes, or if you're from Texas, when August comes. In the ancient Near East, they really only have two seasons, a rainy season and a dry season. And after those rains, the vegetation blooms, it flourishes in all its green glory, but it only lasts a few months. It doesn't last long before the sun comes, the dryness comes, and it dries out and kills that same vegetation. The wicked will fade like the grass in dry season. Here in verses 1 and 2, we have a major theme introduced that will influence the rest of our time as we study this lesson today. And that is, in due time, wickedness, though it seems to lead to life temporarily, it will end in death and destruction. And the key for the wise person is to wait and have patience and wait for the Lord and to delight in Him, trusting that He will bring about full life, flourishing in His time. Now from here, we move on to verse 3, where we see that not only is this a righteous wisdom that we're talking about, but it's also an active wisdom. In verse 3, we're instructed about what we should do instead of fretting about the seeming success of the wicked. And that is to trust God and do good. By the psalmist coupling these two actions together, trusting and doing, we can infer that trusting is not just some inner posture of the heart. It's active. It does something in the meantime. And again, we're taken back to those two greatest commandments, to love God and neighbor, to a righteousness that is active. Remember, Old Testament wisdom is knowing how to live skillfully. And this is important because the temptation will always exist that when it looks like the wicked are getting away with it, it will be easy to begin living just like them or to use a common image from Old Testament wisdom literature, to follow in their way. In the late 1950s, as Martin Luther King rose to greater prominence in the civil rights movement, because he led African Americans in a boycott of the bus system in Montgomery, Alabama, he was interviewed by Time Magazine, and he said this about why he encouraged and coached his fellow African Americans to use nonviolent means in their resistance and in their protest. 
Our use of passive resistance in Montgomery is not based on resistance to get rights for ourselves, but to achieve friendship with the men who are denying us our rights and change them through friendship and a bond of Christian understanding before God. Martin Luther King chose not to give in to the violence that was being perpetrated against African Americans in Montgomery at that time. That is, he consciously refused to enter into a course of action, a habitual and long-term movement in a certain direction. He didn't just refuse to do something, that is, violence. He chose to do something else that was counter to what he saw being used against him and his fellow African Americans on a daily basis. Interestingly, as he says in this quotation from this Time Magazine interview, King's goal was to become friends with his enemies and hopefully lead to a conversion of conscience within their hearts. It would have been easier to hurt those who hurt him and his people, but King led his people not only in trusting and waiting on God, but in the meantime, doing good. And as they did so, they deliberately disadvantaged themselves for the good of the other. This brings up another important theme of this psalm, and something we'll see even more clearly in our next two sessions on the Psalms of Lament, and that is desire, wanting something one does not already have. And this leads us to our third and final point, which is the wisdom being taught in this psalm, Psalm 37, is not only a righteous wisdom, it's not only an active wisdom, but it's a pilgrim wisdom. Let's read the next four verses and then see what we mean by that. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. All of these verses, and indeed this entire psalm, imply the audience for this psalm are those who are in danger of giving up on waiting for God by grasping for a temporary blessedness. That is, this psalm is for those who don't have something they really want. Notice the use of the future tense, which was in the bull type of what we just read. We saw the future tense already in verse 2, where we're told the wicked will soon fade like that grass and dry season, and it will, they will wither like the green herb. But beginning in verse 4, we see it again, and then again in verse 5 and verse 6, and by my count, some 25 times in this psalm, the future tense is used, promising future blessing for the wise, righteous one, and future curse for the wicked and the foolish. Despite the way things may look now, implying that the wise will often experience lack, deprivation, hardship, injustice, frustration now in the present. But the good news is, as we said in session one, every human emotion 
and really experience is present here in the Psalms. And here, the desire for fully alive life is present. And that should give us comfort, especially when we are confused about following the way of Christ, the way of the cross, and not seeing any blessedness as a result. But that said, desire is not necessarily encouraged in this psalm or any of the others, but instead it's simply acknowledged as a reality of lived experience. As Eugene Peterson writes, Desire is not absent from the Psalms. It would not be possible to have authentically human speech here without it. But it is not encouraged. It is wrestled into obedience, subjected to the strenuous realities of living by faith in the God who reveals himself to us. We should desire blessedness, flourishing, fully alive life, but desire has to be brought under the reign of Christ the man of sorrows, the man who knew sorrow, the man who willingly laid aside his privilege. It has to deal with the realities of living in a world where injustice is still at work, promises are still broken, the weak and the vulnerable are taken advantage of. If our desire does not stare these realities fully in the face and bring them before God in prayer, it can turn into bitterness, anger, or cynicism when we're disappointed or allowed to go in the opposite direction, ignoring these realities, our desire can lead to a kind of hedonism, acted out through seeking pleasure for its own sake. As Christians, our blessedness has already been given to us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's life we can have now, and we can hear and taste it every week in word and sacrament. But our full blessedness is still not yet. It's in the future at the great wedding supper of the Lamb that we see in the book of Revelation. In the meantime, we are those who sing those words from that hymn, This is my Father's world, that say, Though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. That though we experience frustration and sorrow and hurt now, through praying psalms like Psalm 37, we can wrestle those expressions of desire and align them with God's future promise of fully alive life in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's because the wisdom handed down to us in Psalm 37 is ultimately a pilgrim wisdom, one that allows us to exist in the world while not being of the world a wisdom that allows us to trust the process of God's righteousness, one that acknowledges the reality of seeking and looking for the good life, for fully alive life, but trusts that ultimately that life will be ours only when we take that seat at the great wedding feast of the Lamb in the new heavens and in the new earth, the true promised land.